Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. Again with us today is Haven Pell, who is the blogger on The Pundificator, one of his various projects. And this is the second in our series on continuing discussions on various topics. Today, we're going to be talking about sports and more specifically, the specialization of sports and the various impacts that it has and maybe some of the things we lose when we specialize too early. Welcome back aboard, Haven. Thank you, Fraser. We were just talking before about the craziness at Yale and the Yale Bowl where Harvard and Yale were stuck uh, by various climate protests by the students. And then because Yale doesn't have lights, they almost had to forfeit because uh, the game was getting dark. (laughs) What other craziness are you seeing? Well, ESPNU did a wonderful thing as it was getting later in the afternoon. They said to the TV audience, you can't see how dark this is because our cameras have things called irises and the irises can be opened way up. I guess like having your eyes dilated so they can be opened way up. And that game looked pretty normal on television. But then they closed the iris down to the normal level. And it was amazing that they could see the ball at all. The sun set at 420 and the game ended at 440 after two overtimes. And It really was pretty amazing that they could see anything. Well, you know what? Actually, there might have been some pretty big wagering around that game. I was going to say there might have been some real active interest in Vegas on this. And you have everything from a possible forfeit to darkness to who knows what. Yeah, yeah. It was ridiculous. I mean, Yale was wonderful. I don't think Harvard stopped Yale one time in the second half. I think every time they got the ball, I think they made a touchdown. And Harvard made a bunch, too. They They had one kid... A freshman who in his first five carries, he made four touchdowns and his total yards was 240 yards and five carries. Quit right there. You know, that's when you retire and go straight to Bain Consulting or something like that and move on. (laughs) Exactly. Anyway, enough of that. I was going to say, as we get back to sports and, and the specialization of sports, I mean, it, you don't have to look very far, even on the sidelines of Yale and Harvard in college football. And then if you go by extension to LSU or Georgia, where the physical differences are, let's call it obvious in terms of size and speed. What are you seeing these days as far as specialization is concerned? I I grew up in a world where I played a lot of different sports and obviously I don't have to make my living at it, but it seems to me everyone these days, they they specialize real early. Well, it's something that there's a guy who's really interesting on this topic and he and I for a time had a a blog called wellplayed.us. I think you probably know him. His name is Dan Lakaitis. And he is a psychologist and he does quite a lot with people for sports. I I think he deals in many other areas as well, but that's one of them. And so while we were doing this website together, we decided to count up the number of sports that we had played in our lives and that we were very open minded about it. If you thought it was a sport, it was absolutely a sport. So if you wanted to count bridge as a sport, that was fine. I certainly counted hall hockey at boarding school. We certainly we took it every bit as much as a sport. And I got to something near 100 of different things that I had tried at different times. Didn't stick with all of them. But 
it seemed to me that that was really was a pretty good thing. And I've been sort of concerned looking at younger people. I have three grandchildren or four grandchildren, the oldest of whom is eight. And there's already some sort of pressure to focus on one sport and be involved in a team that might play for 10 months in the year. My daughter who's a very capable athlete, doesn't really want her children to do that and is trying to have them do lots of different things, which seems to be the better view for young people from a physical perspective. It is repetitive stress, injuries, doing the same motions all the time is not very good for you if you're 10. That's a reason then, and the boy, the concern of taking the fun out of it and, and trading your childhood sports life for the quest for an athletic scholarship really gives me pause. What do you think? Well, first of all, the, the odds are so long. I mean, for people who are really making that big a life bet on something that's very, very difficult and rare. I remember I did a paper on stress and sports and how it leads to drug use. And this is back. This is back where I probably was at my peak intellectually, eighth grade. But I remember that the stat that really spun out to me was that it was something like one in 10,000 people gets a football scholarship or something like that. So against that backdrop, yeah, if you go to some of the more niche sports, you decide that fencing or women's golf or something like that, where there are a lot of different scholarship opportunities in place, that's the route to go. Maybe there's some component on that that we think is interesting, but I just think you lose something. And I think you double lose something with the fact that there are individual sports and then there are team sports. And then there are things where even within team sports, you know, it's not clear immediately where your physicality is going to drive you at age eight. You know, whether you're a safety or a quarterback or a lineman or a punter, I don't know how you determine that so quickly. I mean, I guess that's why they have talent evaluators. But at the same time, you would lose a lot if you concentrated in one, either in a team sport without some component of individuality associated with it, or if you go sort of the Wayne Gretzky slash Williams sisters slash golf world where there's a lot of pressure to focus very, very quickly or else you're going to be left behind. And there are plenty of examples on the other side of it where there are a lot of good lessons learned in a team environment. I think all of that is true. I probably flourished more in a team sports environment. I never, I was not known for having the greatest hands in the world. In fact, there was a summer that we all played softball. I, because I had been in school in Europe for a period of time, I really hadn't played much baseball at all. And I certainly didn't do it in a normal way. So I was quickly nicknamed Dr. Strange Glove. But it was fun doing it, and I never felt that I had great hands. So trying to find more sports with feet or just the ability to go someplace, skiing, for example, soccer, were good. But there were a lot of them, and changing from one to the other as the seasons ended and, and seemingly there would be a some sort of a basket near the front door, and it would have a lacrosse stick in it and a hockey stick in it and a baseball bat and maybe some golf clubs or whatever. And you kind of took whatever you got. You took whatever you wanted at the time. And there was no particular, I mean, sure, there were seasons, but there was no sort of sense that it had to be hyper-organized, that it had to have an enormous results and measuring and, and so forth. It was just really sort of meant to be fun. 
I just feel like in my background that there's a lot less pressure around all of that, whether it was youth soccer or baseball or all the different things. You you were just out there to have fun. And it seems to me that that much like college admissions or some of the other components, everything is measured and quantified and driven with the purpose of a future step forward in one way, shape or form, that there's something that sort of drifted away from that. To go back to where you gravitated with sort of the feet oriented sports, I was more of a hands person. I thought I, I mean, I feel like I had good hand eye golf, uh, tennis to some extent, baseball, even football with sort of handsy types of things that that was, you know, I was a good shooter in basketball, that type of stuff. That's where I gravitated toward. Unfortunately, I was sort of a pudgy kid growing up. So anything that involved avoidance of movement was something I was interested in. (laughs) I got fitter later and then felt like, gosh, I wish I'd had this earlier because I might've been able to do more with it. But that and being able to sort of see the court or see the field and where things were going. I loved sports sort of intellectually. I love the numbers around it. I love the marketing around it. I love the mythology around it. And that's where I really gravitated. And then and I guess the physical attributes came later a little bit as I got better in certain things. So I definitely would have liked to have had your hands. I know that that would have been a huge improvement. Well, I probably would have liked your feet. I would have been able to get around a little bit more and probably avoid the 10 or 12 concussions I had in high school football. (laughs) There's an issue right there. I think that there's a very interesting question about who is going to be playing football. I don't, peak football is is a very interesting topic, but I am not seeing a lot of young moms who seem wildly enthusiastic about having their children play football. Hockey still seems okay, but in all likelihood still be football players, but they will be coming from different groups, it seems to me. Well, different groups. I think, too, that it comes from sort of in the Northeast, football is nowhere near the religion that it is in the Southeast, Texas, even California, and in Big Ten country. I look at it and say, you know, a lot of parents are saying, you know, my kids are never going to be six, eight, 300 pounds. There's a lot of damage that happens on the football field, head injuries, other injuries. Is it even good to try to get big enough to be effective in the sport? I think it could be a real issue. I've I've heard it start to bleed into lacrosse a little bit where people are saying, geez, you know, you know, there's a lot of contact and CTE types of injuries that we have to worry about. Do I want my kids to be a part of that? That sport's in its infancy, and it's certainly not a revenue sport. And frankly, as sort of a scholarship sport, that trade is overcrowded (laughs) in many ways, especially as other regions of the country and the athletic folks are starting to find out about that. I view football possibly in the same way that I view boxing, which are you know two sports that I really, really enjoy, but boxing in particular, no one wants their kids to get involved with that. That's sort of an avenue for the poor to sort of pull themselves out of various circumstances, maybe bleeding over into the MMA world. But boy, you take shots to the head and a lot of the various parts of damage associated with that. I think people are starting to associate football in the same type of way. And to a different degree, one of the things that I think has been noticed in the world of women's soccer is that women's knee joints appear to be somehow different from men's knee joints. And so playing soccer repeatedly over and over, you know, if from an early age before people have fully developed is harder on one gender than the other. It may indicate that there are another reason to play soccer for three months and then go off and 
play basketball or play hockey or something. But to try to do it 12 months a year can stress, I'm being cautious here because I'm not sure what I'm supposed what I'm supposed to say, but can stress one gender more than the other. Sure. Well, even in baseball, I think as the money is significant in that sport and the pressure to specialize continues over time, you get into the realm of pitching in particular. And I remember when I was, and so I'm 46, and so back when I was in Little League, there was a guy in our league who had Tommy John surgery at, you know, I guess I was in probably seventh or eighth grade at that point. And I thought, holy cow, I thought that was particularly novel. And I think it was a good pitcher. I don't know whatever happened to him, but he had Tommy John surgery and came back and was throwing curveballs and things like that. I said to myself, wow, that's interesting. That's now extremely commonplace. And the fact that it happens so early and that there's such specialization in sort of this rigorous, it's now to the point where because people were so uncontrolled as far as the coaching goes, there's sort of mandatory pitch counts and things like that to try to alleviate some of these things. But if that sport takes up more than a third of the year, I've got to think that any type of throwing like that is just going to be a huge problem for folks. And, you know, you add on to that, we talked about knee joints and soccer and severe change of direction, a lot of sort of torquey type twisting that maybe not be great early on in life. The other thing, there are a lot of people who are worried about soccer from the CTE perspective, from heading the ball to midair collisions and marking and things like that. I'm like, geez, you know, we're going to get to a point where we're wearing helmets for everything. It's too bad. I remember years and years ago, there was a very old guy who played goalie in hockey. And he was, I mean, when I say very old, it's probably my age now. But anyway, he was in his 70s. And he had always played goalie in hockey. And he loved playing for the St. Nick's. And he wasn't really all that good a goalie, but he was incredibly enthusiastic. He had also had some nasty cancer. And back in the 1950s, one didn't survive that. But he did. And he continued to play goalie. And I remember him saying something that I thought was just crazy at the time. And that was that he was opposed to hockey helmets. And the reason he was opposed to hockey helmets was that he thought it would make people feel so protected that they would use themselves like weapons. And I think that to a certain degree, that has become right. I mean, there was a time where there were things you didn't do in hockey because you you knew that the other guy could do them to you. And you just didn't want to be speared in the in the ribs. But as soon as people started to have pads that covered them everywhere, then you could do all those things. And it has, in some ways, made the game a lot rougher, taken a a good deal of the finesse out of it. But obviously, it is a big deal for the injury perspective. You give footballs the same type of thing. I think that the ability to feel impervious to harm has not only changed the way the game is played, it's caused rule changes because people can't be going 20 miles an hour into each other at 300 pounds, just the physics behind it. At some point, something breaks down. I think you're right. I mean, I guess there's some measure against that when they were wearing leather helmets. There are a lot of other injuries there too. (laughs) And uh, a lot of things unreported and untreated that may have led to a lot of different components. But I look at that and say, yeah, you're absolutely right. At some point, how do you protect people against the most severe and brutal injuries? And at the same time, 
there's such a thirst for competition where bigger, better, faster, more. Is there a way to legislate against that, I suppose? Self-preservation is a pretty good rule maker. I always think that the people who try to make rules, and I think about this on all, all subjects, the people who try to make rules are just laying out the bait for the people who try to break rules. As soon as you've written down what you think your rule ought to be, a whole bunch of people start figuring out ways around it. That's human nature. We are competitive. We are looking for every advantage. And, you know, you see people try various different schemes that seem outlandish. And it is in the safety arena, the kids' jerseys in hockey have stop signs on the back. So they'll have a stop sign to keep you from checking a kid from the rear. Hmm, Crazy. I mean, as we talk about the team sport, I find the specialization route acute in sports like tennis and golf, maybe something like auto racing, where the amount of skill that the individual must have in order to succeed, obviously athleticism as well, trumps almost everything. We talked a little bit about the sports psychology aspect of it. That is a phenomenon that I think is really only has become important in the last, oh, let's call it 30 years. How do you see that? I look at a sport like golf, which is the one I'm best at probably, and and you know, there's lots of different sort of advanced coaching for every different skill of that particular sport, in addition to the sports psychologist aspect, which is in many ways the most important because the ability to come back from defeat and to be resilient after bad shots is is really the hallmark of success for those people who are able to do something in that sport. What about that is different that you've seen in, in your life? Well, I think that there's a whole lot more of it. And I think if you were looking for a benefit from the idea, whether you think about it in terms of specialization or whether you think about it in terms of emphasis, you could be highly emphasizing sports, but doing a lot of them, or you could be highly emphasizing the sports and only doing one of them. So I want to try to focus for just a second on emphasis rather than specialization. And I think one of the positive emphases is the sports psychology because it carries over into the rest of your life. And, you know, your attitude about sports and self-management are skills that are important in everything you do. They're EQ type skills that you would use in a in an advisory business or in something where you were running a team of people who were maybe software engineers or something. Those skills are transferable and they're good ones to have. Whether you can execute a perfect header is kind of only useful in soccer. I mean, there's not many other calls for that. But the sports psychology, it seems to me, is a good thing in understanding how to be resilient, how to not get down on yourself. I've read a great deal about it. I don't think I'm very good at it. In retrospect, there was way too much emphasis on winning in my life and not enough emphasis on playing. And that has taken some time to to sort through and I hope get better at. The one area where I really sort of looked at it, especially as I tried to get better at golf because I focused on that, you know, once I was done with college and that was going to be my big hobby amongst others, but sort of my big physical hobby, you know, as I got to be more competitive in it and do more in it, 
I found myself to be very receptive to coaching and been told I've been very coachable and sort of good on that front. And then on the competitive front, being very competitive. And, and as I sort of analyzed the different things where I would have these outages, I would call it, where I'd have these gaps in performance where I'd feel ready to go and I'd get off to just this, this horrible start. And so what the heck is going on here? And then I'd come back and I'd fight and I'd keep fighting and, you know, I'd be down and there were lots of good things to come out of it. But I, there's always this little part of me that wants to understand more and more, how do I get out of the gate quickly? And I didn't go to a sports psychologist for this, but I tried to analyze different parts of my routine. Did I get up? Did I have a big breakfast? Was I doing push-ups beforehand? Was I listening to the right music? And that type of thing. And it just goes to show that that as you get specialized coaching, or I don't know if, it, if my example shows this, but I intuit this that stuff counts. And the specialization, as much as it's, you know, there's lots of things to bemoan about it, but for those people who really are trying to get that comparative advantage over the next person, the the level of difference between success and failure is so small, the stuff really counts. There's very little sports psychology that is going to guide you to being a bad sport. Okay. Most of it is good. I don't think I've ever heard a sports psychologist advise somebody to cheat. You're going to be exposed, the more you're involved with that, the more you are going to be exposed to values that you would like to have anyway. Some of us do, so some of us don't. Some of us have them on one day and don't have them on another day. Or at different points of our lives, we may be better sports than at other times. We may. The idea of getting over being down on yourself. I'm sure playing golf, you've played with people who really bemoan every bad shot and they criticize themselves and so forth. And that was the Timothy Galway book and his book about tennis and his book about the inner game of tennis and the inner game of golf. He talked a lot about self one and self two. And there is poor old self one out there trying to do his best, maybe not getting off to a good start, like you said. But he's, you know, self one is always trying. And then self two is the critic, the inner critic, that is busily telling self one how terrible he is. And it isn't helpful. Self two has a big advantage over self one. It is easy to wreck someone's confidence, and it's especially easy to wreck your own confidence. The sports psychology piece, I've found, I've gotten a lot out of the conversations that I've had with people who knew about that field. I really thought that was terrific. It sounds like I need to go uh, have some conversations myself <laughs> to get, get out of my own head. I found there was, sadly, as you get closer to my age than yours, there's a reason that they put those forward tees on a golf course. And uh, that's so I can play them. And you are fading. There's no question that between age 46, where you are, and 73, where I am, yeah, a lot's going to go away. And I found that I did not deal with it very well in golf. I was frustrated that I wasn't having the same scores as I did before, and I wasn't able to hit the ball as far as I had before and so forth. And I kind of actually went away from it for a time and then came back and concluded that there were two components to it. You could play or compete, but in my case, not both. And I found that the thing that was most helpful was to apparently the scorecard and the little pencil are really heavy. And it was tiring me out to have to carry that heavy scorecard and the heavy pencil 
all the way around 18 holes. But when I left the scorecard and the pencil at home, there was a spring in my step that was not otherwise there. It's interesting because when I'm playing with my friends and just goofing off and so on, when I don't care, I don't play that well, <laughs> generally speaking. I, I need competition to sharpen me up. And it's a strange thing. I, I can feel just my concentration level just goes up 10 notches when I'm in a match for something. And money has nothing to do with it, really. But it's more, you know, if I'm in a competitive environment, the juices are really flowing. And it's funny, too, because I, now that I think about it, golf is much different than the racket sports in that a bad shot can ruin everything. Whereas, you know, if you double fault or, you know, you hit one, you know, unforced error in tennis, you know, that's it. You go on to the next one and you can kind of regroup quickly without too much collateral damage. In golf, you know, if you put one in the water and suddenly you put, you have an eight on a hole, that particular nine's probably blown up and et cetera. I've been able to, I don't know what it is, but when the competition comes out, my juices get flowing. I'm able to put the mistakes behind me faster in some strange way. I don't know what to think about that other than maybe that's just it. It, it just, I have a level of concentration and, and I guess part of it too, and that the sport's so strange that the course management is such a big part of scoring well. Again, I guess this is also an experience component too, but I have been able to just knowing that if I can think my way around the course and, and limit mistakes, I, I give myself a better chance of success. Whereas when I'm playing, you know, sort of freewheeling it with my buddies, you know, I'm trying to show off and I'm trying to do things that I thought I could do before and maybe can still do now and, you know, go for it in two on par fives when the game plan around that completely changes when I'm in a serious situation. Well, I know how I feel about that. I'm jealous of you. The reason that I have a fallback position is because I don't think I have been able to achieve what you were doing. And I, my hat's off to you. I think it's absolutely wonderful. I mean, the perfect world is the person who can play and compete and be a good sport. And I wish I was better at it. I, I don't think I'm especially good at competing per se. So I wish I had that skill. I think the flip side of that is practice and those types of things. I'm like, uh, I'm not a grinder out on the practice tee and things like that. I'm kind of just sort of get up and play. And I, I guess I, and this is different from when I grew up, I've made peace with the fact that I can't expect myself to be good if I haven't been out practicing, but you know, just where life circumstances are, I live in New York city. So practicing golf or trying to stay fit for that particular sport is, is a challenge. I don't go out there and expect too much from myself. Although there are times when I get out there and I go, geez, you know, I didn't really do much studying for this test. <laughs> and then, uh, and then I get the question when my ball's buried in the sand or something like, you know, I don't really remember quite how to hit this. Well, it's one of those things where I say, geez, you know, it may be time to move down to Florida because if I were playing a lot more, I feel like I could be a lot better and life intervenes. It's interesting. I'm thinking we might try some other sports besides golf, but let me share this one thought about golf. There was a moment, and I suppose it was, oh, it was a fat 10 years ago. It might have been 15 years ago, where I took my oldest son to Bandon Dunes. He's a, you know, he's a very good golfer and loved it and so forth. And it was just a sort of a father-son thing to go to Bandon Dunes. At the time, they had three courses there. And we set it up so that we could play 36 holes a day. Bandon Dunes is all walking. And we had the same caddy 
for six rounds over three days. And the golf pro at, at, at home had said, remember, Haven, you're going to have a bad round. You can't play six rounds in three days and not have a bad one. You'll get tired. You'll get down on yourself. Something will happen. Well, sure enough. You know, I think it was the second day. Maybe it was in the afternoon. I can't really remember. But it was awful. We really liked the caddy that we were with. There were just two of us and the same caddy for eight hours a day for three days. And it's a beautiful place. And so I'm having a real struggle and it's not much fun and, and so forth. And so I said to the caddy, you've probably seen this happen a lot. You see a lot of people come out to Bandon Dunes and they make a big deal of it. And they're thinking about that it's kind of a once in a lifetime. And, and then they don't play well. And I said, what makes it change? I have such a vivid memory of watching this tall, thin guy with two bags on his shoulders striding along the fairway. And I said, well, you know, what makes it change? And he said, when they stop trying. That really stuck with me. The pernicious aspect of trying too hard, and especially in that game, which obviously involves a lot of touch. But as soon as you say, okay, well, this round is blown. I've had an eight or I've had two eights or whatever, and it's going to be a lousy score. And then you say, oh, well, so be it. And then suddenly you start to play fairly well. The braid is a scary thing. It can get in the way and when you're unlocked and when you've been just suffering. <laughs> and then all of a sudden you say, you know what? Okay, whatever my goals were, I'm not going to achieve them, but I'm going to go out here and let's just try to have fun. All of a sudden, it's it just all loosens up sometimes. And it's an interesting thing. Just to switch sports, uh, to get to the, maybe more on the racket side of things, David Foster Wallace is one of my favorite writers, and he is at his best when he is writing about tennis, or was at his best, sadly. And take me through a little bit. I mean, you've, you've, you've had some proficiency at a lot of different racket sports. When you're getting better and you're starting to see the ball, you're seeing it spin, the game is slowing down, the strategy elements come into it. How much of that requires that specialization early versus sort of rote athleticism and maybe some of the you know court awareness that might be developed in other sports? Sounds like you're talking about the schooled athlete versus the natural athlete. And boy, I have a lot of respect for the natural athlete. I certainly think that they're there. And uh, I think that there are people who can learn and practice, practice, practice. But a natural athlete is a beautiful thing to see. They don't have to learn to be good at it. They just are good at it. But there are very few of them. <laughs> or maybe I think there are very few of them because I'm not one of them. But it is a wonderful thing when you see somebody who is just really, really good at something and how they see it. Then, of course, you know, once you get to the highest level of things, then everybody is really good. And then you go back to practicing being the difference. And the person who is you know, hitting more serves or, you know, practicing his backhand more than the other people or who's spending more time in the batting cage. If they're equally talented, yes, the practice, I think, is definitely additive. Let's go back for a second, I think, to maybe the pressure or the remunerative aspects of sports. You know, one of the things that existed certainly back in the late 70s and 80s when I was sort of in youth sports is that there, and I didn't suffer from this, but there were other kids who did sort of the pressure of others 
parents or otherwise, and maybe sort of projecting their either their failures or desires for stardom, et cetera, uh, recognition onto their kids. It seems like it's five times as bad now with the media attention and the internet and the access to information and history that used to exist. I mean, are you seeing that amongst your peers? Yes. There was a anecdote that was, for a time, my daughter was involved with figure skating and she worked very hard at it. I did carry it on until she was maybe 12 or so years old. And, uh, you know, she was doing fine, competing in things, learning to jump, doing a variety of things. God, it was just brutally expensive. It was like another tuition at private school. There was an eye-opener moment when one of the kids that she competed with, her father built the kid her own rink. I mean, I suppose that's, I don't know what it costs to put a skating rink in your backyard, but it's a lot. And, you know, you suddenly, and this, of course, was a covered rink because you can't, nobody can practice proper figure skating outdoors. And every single instant that you are involved with figure skating, you are paying somebody and sometimes more than one person. You're paying for the rink time, paying for your share of an hour of ice time. You're paying a coach. Then there are other choreographers and there are people who do costumes and there are people who do all of these kinds of things and every single one of them is getting paid for it. And so the amount of money that you have to put in to this, I sometimes wonder whether the people who are trying to get their kids scholarships to college have thought about the fact that they are basically paying for the cost of college in the kids' sports programs. If college is, say, $75,000 a year times four is $300,000, it ceases to be an investment if you put up $300,000 to save $300,000. That has a zero return on investment. Or maybe a better way to put it is a one in 10,000 chance at saving $300,000. Some of these programs are incredibly expensive. Kids' soccer can be really expensive. Obviously, hockey, because of the cost of the ice time, is can be very expensive. My trainer is a swimmer, and she did swimming at Duke and triathlon. So she has her now 11-year-old daughter swimming, and they're in Montgomery County, Maryland, which apparently produces more swimmers than almost the whole rest of the country combined. Is that where Phelps came from? He's in Baltimore. Montgomery County is right around Washington, D.C., But Montgomery County puts a huge number of swimmers out there. And those swimming programs are not cheap. Obviously, you have to pay for your share of a pool and you have to have a coach and you have to have all these different things. It it apparently is organized around clubs. The swimmer that you know from that area is Katie Ledecky. It can be very, very expensive. And I wonder if people are really thinking, hey, if I'm just doing this to get an athletic scholarship, should I be just putting the money in a piggy bank and paying for college? That is a choice. Well, and in sports like that, it's strange because the identification of the truly talented, I think, does happen fairly early. And it's tough, though. I mean, you, you talk about people who are mortgaging their houses to you know, sort of pay for ice time or pool time. And, and then the, the equipment in hockey, the travel, you know, if you're in the New York metro area and you're going to Toronto and Montreal for 
travel games and things like that. It's just an unbelievable expenditure. And I ran into, over the course of time, a couple people who went the auto racing route or even the equestrian route. I mean, those are two, or even the sailing route, now that I think about it. I mean, all three of those sports, I mean, that's just... You can spend as much as you want to try to gain whatever advantages that you have. And I'm always surprised at who succeeds. And I always think to myself, how many really talented people never quite get there for want of resources and I guess to a secondary extent, the lack of commitment to want it. And what is unsaid, what did I know about me when I was eight or 10 or 13 or whatever? Nothing. What did anybody else really know about me? when I was those ages, and I think the answer is also kind of nothing. So what happens if you have somebody who would really be good at sport A, but they're devoting all their time to sport B? Did Tiger Woods choose golf, or did uh, his father choose golf for him? Now, that one worked out. He's obviously is a superb golfer, maybe clearly one of the best that's ever been. But what would have happened if randomly his mother had said, nah, I don't think golf is a good idea. Why don't you play tennis? He might have been a lousy tennis player. It's funny. uh, A good example of that, Ernie Els, one of Tiger's biggest rivals, probably my favorite golfer. He started out, he was better at tennis growing up. And he got to a point where his talent, first of all, his hand-eye coordination and just general fluidity sort of stood out. But then somewhere they they looked at him and said, you are a golfer. And one of his most famous things is he there's a famous picture of him with Phil Mickelson. I think they're both 12 or something like that with the World Youth Championships or something like that. And these are two of the most preternaturally gifted golfers ever. It's amazing to see that. And it's almost like modeling. I think that there are there are certain people who just have it and you can see it. And there are a lot of people who want it and think they're close. And sometimes it's just, it doesn't matter. (laughs) Yeah. And I suppose it's sort of a short story type of thing of some poor kid who devotes all his time to a sport and, you know, peeks out and then discovers much later in life that he chooses another sport at which he would have been much better if he'd spent his time on that one. When Roald Dahl was writing some of his horror stories. He was much better known for his children's books, but he had a a series of pretty, pretty terrific sort of very creepy stories that might be in that genre. Right. Where you find out you were, you were destined for something else, but it never quite happened and circumstances didn't present themselves. Just goes to show how much luck sometimes is involved with someone's ultimate destiny. For sure. For sure. To that end, I mean, I think we're kind of reaching the end of what we're talking about here. But as we go into the specialization part one last time, I'm of the opinion that in general, most people would be better suited having a variety of experiences and capabilities and that ultimately, you know, if they play their cards right and that these types of experiences actually would help suit them in the thing that they're ultimately great at later on in the athletic area. Where do you come out on that front? I'm with you. And it's very interesting. We are talking about this as two people having a conversation, both of whom have sort of an athletic background and what's been very much a part of our lives. The Aspen Institute has taken this on as a program. And of course, they have a variety of different things that they focus on and and try to make the world a better place. But they have a play program in which they are focusing on 
many of these kinds of issues, and I think very effectively. They focus on specialization. They focus on injuries. They focus on how much time a person should be devoting to sports. And they they say it's one hour per week of the child's age. So if you have an eight-year-old who is involved in a series of organized sports, it shouldn't be more than eight hours a week. So that seems like a, a reasonable amount. And when they're 14, well, maybe it could be more. These situations where you have people finishing school at a normal school finishing hour each day and then going off for the club sports, the various different things that they do, all weekday dinners are in the car and the kids get home at nine o'clock, at which point it's time to begin your homework. And, you know, you, you hear moms saying, I had to send a note with my kid to school the next day. He just he just ran out of gas. He couldn't do his homework at 9.30. It was too late. He needed his sleep, and you know that's what had to happen. And to me, that's taking it too far. It's easy for me as a grandfather to look and say, oh, this is the way I would do it. But I'm not feeling the competitive pressure from the other parents. I'm not feeling what everybody else is doing. No question. And you know, as it sort of rears back to college and sort of the competitiveness around there. I don't know how people do, you know, sort of normal school work and then the athletics and then, you know, sort of taking on Mandarin and violin lessons and being school president. There's just, there's not enough time in the day. And, and the time is so programmed in many ways that I think many people come out of it or come out the other side, not able to really deal with themselves or able to deal with long stretches of quiet where they have to sort of come up with their own structure. I think it's very difficult. And I think the people who can resist doing it, who can look and say, obviously, parents have a huge role in their children's lives. And so they can sort of control it. And the ones who are able to say, I think multi-sport is a better answer. And in some cases, there's a privilege aspect to it. I mean, there's some parents who say, well, if you got a scholarship to a college, that's fine, but don't worry about it. You don't need one. You know, we didn't get into what it's like. Suppose you are successful and suppose you are recruited to play for a college. I mean, for all the stuff about student athletes and not paying them, those athletes are absolutely employees of the coach. No question. The coach to athlete a relationship at college is absolutely the same as a boss and employee. No question about it. Why don't we pause here because we're going to have a bunch of other topics coming up. Haven, always good to talk with you. Thank you, Fraser. Love being with you. And these are terrific conversations and I'm looking forward to lots more of them. Excellent. You've been listening to Fraser Rice and Haven Pell. Haven's the blog is on the Pundificator. You can find that on Facebook and on the pundificator.com and look forward to hearing more from us shortly. Thanks again. Thanks, Fraser. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually. Wealth Actually.